Well, can I invite you to turn to Mark's Gospel and chapter 1. We'll read verse 1 through to verse 11. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of, of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a level belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending upon him like a dove then a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son in whom i am well pleased and so read that read that portion of god's word well let's just pray once more speak O lord your servant listens with the spirit come upon the word and make it effectual in our hearts. Amen. Well, it's sadly, but very true, that in this world, people are very selective, aren't they, about who they associate with. I remember before I was converted at secondary school, I remember where the Christian Union met, and you could see them because it was one of these 1970s glass buildings, and and you'd sit them all sitting in there reading the Bible. And I remember thinking, I will never be seen dead with that group of people. They looked like Christians. They spoke like Christians. They just, to me, they were stereotypical Christians. And then the Lord saved me. And the people I most wanted to be with were the people that I used to see as beneath me. But we see this, don't we, in life. People from a nice part of town don't want to spend long in a, in a rough part of town. We don't like to associate with certain types of people. Well, for the Jews, their expectation was, I'm sure you know, and heard it preached many times, that when the Messiah came, he would come in judgment, and he would come in wrath, and he would fundamentally come to deal with sinners in vengeance, and in flaming fire. And in one sense, this was an understandable expectation 
Because, of course, when there was prophetic revelation concerning the coming of Messiah, it was like two mountain peaks. And you couldn't necessarily see the distance of time between each peak, and they would look like they were one event. And so, for example, in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, it closes saying, the day is coming when the Lord will come and all the wicked shall be consumed as stubble. And so naturally, when the Jews were waiting for Messiah, they were expecting that to happen when the Messiah came. There was a, there was a sense of this in John the Baptist's preaching, wasn't there? He will come bringing the baptism of spirit and of fire. Now, John the Baptist was, as according to our Lord and Saviour, the greatest man born of a woman. Why? Because of his mission, his ministry, as one who preached the coming of Messiah. Because of his closeness to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the closest prophet to the Lord Jesus Christ, both in time and in the intensity of his message concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's preaching, he's coming. I've come to prepare the way for him. The one who is Jesus, the Saviour, the one who is the Son of God, the one who is the Christos, Messiah, the Anointed One. Verse 1 of chapter 1. What will he be like when he comes? Whom will he associate with? How will he deal with people like you and I? Remember, this one who's coming is the Son of God. He is the High and the Lofty One. He is the Trice-Holy God. John's Gospel tells us that Isaiah saw his glory. The one seated on the throne in the day that King Uzziah died was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And we read in verse 9 of a divine appearance. That's my first point, a divine appearance. He turns up. He comes among men. The most sweet words you could read. Jesus came. Jesus came from Nazareth and was baptised by John in the Jordan. This is real history. Sorry to stress that, but it is. We have to keep reminding ourselves of that. I used to get very frustrated when there's Sunday schools. And sorry if you've done this. I don't mean to be horrible or to sort of attack you or anything. But, but I get frustrated when we say, oh, let's hear some stories. These are more than stories. This is history. It came to pass. This is fulfillment language. The Son of God came from a real place to a particular place where there was something really going on. He came. And think about where he came. You have the Holy Son of God coming to the Jordan where John is baptising. You have the one who has come from the most holy place to the most unholy place you could imagine. Just think about this. This is the wilderness. So the very location itself was a barren place. And that's another sermon for another day. The wilderness spoke of sin and unbelief. You look at Israel's history in the wilderness. The wilderness itself was a place that spoke of judgment. But here you have crowds, multitudes of the highest rank and order of sinners that Israel had at the time. Coming to John, confessing their sins. Here you have harlots. Tax collectors, murderers, thieves, whatever sin of whatever kind and whatever stripe are concentrated in this place. So you have, if you like, the Holy One coming to a place of concentrated wickedness in one location. It wasn't the righteous that came out to be baptised by John. He preached a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. 
What would you expect to happen when you've read your Bible, particularly the Old Testament, concerning the glory and the holiness of God, when such a God confronts such wickedness? What would you expect? He is the high and lofty one who dwells in the high and holy place. Habakkuk 1 verse, verse 13 says, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Or consider this scripture. Vengeance is mine and recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand and the things to come will hasten upon them. On Numbers 23. Be sure your sin will find you out. You have this collision then. A holy God, the son of God coming to a sinful place. And yet what we see is wonder of all wonders. He doesn't come to find out the sin of sinners. He comes that sin might find him out. Here is the pure son of God coming to where unpure sinners are. And he comes to be baptised by John. So my first point was divine appearance. Secondly then foresee with me a divine humiliation. Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. Consider how shocking this is, how surprising this is. He's coming to receive John's baptism. Look back at verse 4. John's baptism was a baptism for the remission, the forgiveness, the removal of sins. You only get baptised by John if you have sin to be baptised of, to be, to be forgiven, to be cleansed, to be washed away. And we read then in verse 5 that the people that came, they were confessing sins. In other words, they understood they really did have sins. They, they were, there were specific things that they, the Lord had convicted them of that they needed to confess. And Jesus comes to John and says, baptize me. There's, there's nothing strange about sinners receiving a baptism for the remission of sins. There's nothing strange about that. Obviously, you might say it's surprising because, like we considered yesterday, sinners are hard-hearted. Sinners don't naturally want to confess their sins. But actually, it's a perfectly sensible thing to do if you understand spiritual reality. If you've had a glimpse of who God is and how sinful and wicked you are compared to God, if you've had any revelation and insight into the need of your soul... Why wouldn't you? You would be a maniac. You'd be an insane man to not be baptised for the remission of sins. You, it would be the height of folly. From God's viewpoint, then, this was a, a, a perfectly sensible and legitimate and reasonable thing to do if you're a sinner. But for the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, to be baptised... Now, we know from other accounts in Matthew's Gospel, um, we, we have insight into the d discussion that went on between John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. And John the Baptist says, far be it from me to baptise you. It is you who should be baptising me. You have no sins. How could you possibly, how could you possibly take upon yourself the identity of a sinner? Because that's what he's doing. I imagine, I don't know they did this because in English we love to cue, don't we, you know? Um, it's, it's funny, I was listening to the radio yesterday, <laughs> coming down here, and they were discussing the cues for the Queen's funeral, and they were saying, you know, it's, isn't it interesting how uh, there's lots of, been lots of guidance and instruction about how to cue, but, you know, we didn't, we didn't need that instruction, did we? We know how to cue, we're good at cueing, and this has been our moment to show the world how to cue. Um, and I imagine there being a cue 
some sort of order anyway. John the Baptist is baptizing, multitudes are coming out, there has to be some order. There's some sort of queue. And one by one, John's baptizing them. And Jesus takes his place in the line. In front of him is a prostitute. Behind him is a tax collector. What is the assumption that people could make who know nothing about him at this point, about him? He is a sinner. That, that, that is the, it would have been a reasonable assumption to make. And that's why John the Baptist argued with him. But the Lord prevailed and said, no, it is, it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. What are we to make of this? How humbling this must have been for the Son of God. It was humbling for the Creator, the infinite Creator, who fills all space and is immense in every place, to confine himself, if you like, to a human body. That was humility. Took on the form of flesh. But then he took on the form of a servant. But here you have him now taking on the form of a sinner. Not becoming a sinner, let's be clear about that. He didn't immediately change and become guilty of sin himself. He had no sins of his own. But he took on the form of sinful flesh. He came in the appearance of sinful flesh, Hebrews tells us. And here he is. Taking the baptism of a sinner. Why? Because of his name. Yesu, Jesus, Yeshua. Saviour, the Lord saves. By being baptised, he is submitting to a baptism designed for sinners to point ultimately to his eventual death to die for sinners. When you are baptised today as it was then, you are effectively saying, I deserve to die. In fact, interestingly, the River Jordan was, meant death, judgment. That's why Israel had to pass through judgment to go into the promised land. These are all pictures. And Jesus going into the water is saying, I deserve to be judged. But you have no sins. But I, am, I have come to be one with this people. They are my people. And I cannot have a different destiny to theirs. If they deserve to die, I deserve to die. Not because of sins my own, but by virtue of their sins imputed to my account. If they're under a divine curse, I must be under that curse. He is, in being baptized, is humbling himself to the lowest possible point. He is saying, I deserve the judgment because they do. I have come to bear the full brunt and force of the holy law against sinners. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and I have come to bear the divine vengeance against this people. Furthermore, the waters pictured sins being washed away. Now, don't want to remind you of the last couple of years, but we were very diligent, weren't we, to avoid a virus. I often think to myself, if Christians were as diligent about holiness and avoiding any resemblance of sin as we were about avoiding COVID, we'd be living a lot holier lives. Symbolically, though, where were their sins washed away into? The waters. That's the point. And you emerge from the waters and you leave your sins there. The cleansing waters. Not, re not really, but symbolically. 
Of course, this is something only the Spirit of God can do in your life. And ultimately, this baptism was a symbol of a greater baptism that Jesus was going to endure on the cross. He says elsewhere, I have a baptism to undergo and how I am in anguish until it is accomplished. This baptism, death, burial, resurrection, spoke of course of his dying and being buried and being raised three days later for new life. But these waters, if you like, symbolically had all the people's sins in And what does our Lord do? He plunges himself. And the waters come over him. In the sins of his people. He, if you like, becomes polluted by the very waters. As they are poured over his whole being. Now let me be clear again, lest I be accused of of speaking heresy. He did not become a sinner. He had no sins of his own. He remained separate and pure in himself, but he became indistinguishable from our sin. At the cross, God saw you and me. He saw our sin really and truly upon the Son of God. How humbling it must be for he who is the very opposite of sin to be so closely associated with my sin. How humbling it must be for him to stand where I deserve to stand and to be in God's sight what we are. I deserve to die because of my sins. You deserve to die because of your sins. He did not. It makes me think of those Old Testament prophecies. Isaiah 53. Most moving words. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's because he would undergo a greater baptism that our baptism can mean anything. It's because he endured the baptism of fire that our baptism of spirit and water can be saving and can, be, can picture the true reality of what we've experienced in our hearts. Here we see the love of Christ, the humility of Christ, the condescending mercy of Christ. How can we doubt his grace? How can we doubt that he would cleanse us from the deepest diet of sin? There would have been awful people there. And I can say this, my dear friends, if you were there, if I were there, he would not have been ashamed to identify with us. Even you with all your sin. He says, it's okay, I am willing, I will bear it. If he was willing to identify with us, it also tells us, doesn't it? It asks us the question, will we identify with him? If he was not ashamed to call us brethren, as sinful as we are, will we own his cause when he made our cause his very own? It also challenges us, doesn't it, to ask if he would identify with needy souls as we are, will we identify with needy souls? When you see people from the LGBT community, when you see people of London lost in sin, do you feel more disgust with them? then you have a heart to, sh- to see them saved and experience the mercy of God. What's your innate reaction? Recoiling and horror and disgust? 
Remember what you were and where you came from. And remember what you are by nature. Remember that Christ was not ashamed to make your sin his own responsibility. We must recognise the humility of Christ, the condescending mercy of Christ, has massive implications for our gospel witness and how we relate to needy souls. Could such people come into this building and find a warm welcome? Or would they be told to leave when they can come back dressing a different way? These are, these are questions we have to ask ourselves. That was the divine humility. But then thirdly, see with me, the divine anointing. You see this in verse 10. Immediately coming up from the water, he saw the, uh, the heavens parting and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. This is amazing. One of the things Isaiah longed for in Isaiah 64 was, you may remember when he said, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That God would come down. That God would intervene in history. And here is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prayer. The heavens are literally torn asunder, they're rent. And the Spirit of God comes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, who was this for? This was for Christ. Because, remember, Christ was the Son of God, but he was also fully man. And remember, there's a mystery to this. I don't know how it all works, but what I know is that the Son of God didn't know all things at all times. The Son of God had to learn the Scriptures. He had to grow in wisdom. He had to ask the scribes questions when he was a little boy. He had to understand himself from reading the scriptures about his, his role and his, his purpose. He had to pray. That's why you see him spending a whole night in fasting and praying before, for example, appointing the disciples. He, it wasn't like he, everything was all there. He had to be led by God. The reason he had to, it had to be like this is to be our saviour, he had to live righteously as a man. He had to do all that he did by the Spirit, with, filled with the Spirit without measure. And in other words, the Lord Jesus Christ needed assurance from his Father. The Lord Jesus Christ needed strengthening and empowering for the work that he was being given to do. And you can imagine there was this moment. Christ has just identified with needy souls. How will my Father feel about me now? Will the Spirit stay near me now? Maybe uh, husbands, you can remember. I remember, can think of times when, you know, you, you do something. You go and spend a bit of money to surprise your wife, or you buy this thing, this this, this item, or whatever. But you're not sure how it's going to go down with your wife. And there's there's this sort of trepidation and waiting. Is it going to be? Oh wow! I'm so glad you got that. Or how much did that cost? Have you got the receipt? Can we take it back? And, and there's a sense in which our Lord, from the human perspective, the moment he came out of the water, there must have been this longing, this soul. Now I've taken them to be my own. Will I be abandoned? He remember, he's eternally enjoyed fellowship with the Father and with the Spirit. Was, what he, was this work to, to be so closely associated with, with such wicked men and women, boys and girls, would that cause displeasure in the Godhead? And then we see heaven opened and the Spirit comes upon him. 
This is God's amen to what he's done. The Spirit has come upon him in order to equip him and strengthen him to do the very thing he's just pledged himself to do. Now just think about that for a moment. What he has done here is a picture of what he will do at Calvary. When he will be taken by sinful men. When he will be abandoned by all his disciples. When he will be mocked and scorned. When he will have lashes in his back with bits of glass and bone and his body will be marred beyond all recognition. He will be stripped of all his garments and he will be put naked on a cross in front of his mother. And he will have nails in his hands and in his feet. And he will have agonies of body and agonies of soul as the Father turns his face away. And as the full displeasure that Almighty God feels against our sin is placed upon him. That is what this baptism pictures. The ultimate baptism that he is to be baptised with. And here is a spirit of God coming upon him to strengthen him to go through with that. How much therefore must God want our souls for himself? That he would give his son, his only beloved son, strength to suffer. We don't grow up in an age, do we, where we sort of regularly go and kill animals and eat the animals that we've killed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, my mum can tell me about the fact that her dad used to keep rabbits in the basement and she'd develop an attachment to the rabbits and then one day the rabbit would be on the dinner table. This, we find it something sort of quite tragic, even, even though God's given us these things, we find it something, we, we, we sort of don't like the idea of these animals being fed and strengthened and pumped up in order that they would be slaughtered and feed our bodies. Here is a spirit of God strengthening Christ to be the lamb led away to the slaughter. Here is a spirit of God giving him everything he needs, coming upon him in order that he would go all the way to Calvary for you and for me. How much must God love sinners to enable Christ to be the Lamb of God? And then we read that the Spirit descended upon him like a dove, not literally as a dove, but in the form of a dove. And there's significance in this. In Israel, you had to make offerings for your sin, right? But there were people in Israel that couldn't afford the regular offerings, the oxen or the lamb or the whatever it was. And so they were allowed to offer a pigeon. They were allowed to offer a dove, something that could be caught easily for anyone. And though the blood of those offerings would be mingled with the blood of the other offerings. And this is, I believe, a picture of the fact that Christ has come to be the once-for-all sacrifice for all sinners, poor sinners, weak and wretched, sick and wounded uh, by the fall. So that was the divine anointing. Lastly, see with me the divine affirmation, verse 11. You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This must have been the sweetest word for the Lord Jesus Christ to hear. When a father is pleased with a son, he can't wait to tell him. I know this, there's, there's something, as a parent, you don't find it hard, we shouldn't do, but you don't find it hard to want to affirm your son or your daughter when they do something that pleases you. 
And here is the father expressing his affirmation for the son when the son has committed to save a sinful people. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I love you, son, no less than I have ever loved you. In fact, as the Lord Jesus later said, because I lay down my life, the father loves me. It's why I love you, because you've eternally been the son who will save the people that I have given you. That's why the scriptures call him the lamb that was slain before the creation of the world. He speaks here of a supreme love. You are my beloved son. When we say this is my beloved wife or my beloved husband, we are saying that no one holds a place in my affections as they do. My affection for them is exclusive and it is unique. And he is saying, this is past tense, my beloved son. He's reminding his son that I no less love you now than I have ever loved you. And that only again intensifies something of the Father's love for us. That if the Lord Jesus Christ is the eternally beloved Son, how much must the Father love sinners to give his most precious Son for us? And to say that it pleases me that you're doing this. As it says in the 53rd prophecy of Isaiah, it pleased the Lord to bruise him and to lay on him the iniquities of us all. It speaks of a present love for the son. My son, you are displaying our glory in condescending to save these people and in magnifying the grace that is in God. What a comfort this must have been to Christ and what a comfort this must be to us. Here you see that salvation is a fundamentally Trinitarian work. One God, three persons. But oftentimes, I remember as a new Christian, I, and I'd read the Gospels, and I, I didn't find it hard to believe that Jesus loved me, because you see it in the Gospels, he went to the cross. But I remember having this uncertainty concerning the invisible figure behind, the Father. What about the Father? Does the Father love me as the Son loves me? Or the Spirit? But what I see here is that all persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I was equally committed to the salvation of my soul. The Son loves me enough to suffer for me. The Spirit loves me enough to endure Christ to suffer me. And the Father loves us enough to give his Son for us. He did not withhold his one and only Son, but graciously gave him up for us all. What confidence does this bring to our coming to God? Have you lost, as a church and as individuals, the wonder of gathered worship? You just come to church and tick the box, you sing some hymns, you hear a sermon, you go home. Christ died to bring us near. The, the, the veil where only the, the priest could only go in the holy place and once a year. But the veil was torn that we would all go into the holy place. Now it takes faith to realise this and enjoy this. It's possible that someone can be enjoying it in the gathering and the rest of the people not enjoying it or aware that it can even be experienced. But what we see here is the Father, Son and Spirit worked for our salvation to bring us near. 
that we would know the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Son died to bring me near, the Spirit worked to bring me near, and the Father sent the Son to bring me near. How near do you live to God's heart? How near do you live to the Father? Do you know anything of this? And how does this impact our worship? Should our worship not be fundamentally Trinitarian? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him or creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son and Holy Ghost. The Spirit of God loved you. The Father loves you. The Son loves you. We have been brought into this divine communion. Now here's the wonder. Christ here at this moment was made one with us in our sin. It's when he formally entered his ministry and took our need upon himself. And the Father says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. What does that mean for us? It means the love with which the Father has for his son is now a love we've been brought into. The Father is well pleased with us in him. We are accepted in the well-beloved Son. Wow. You know, it shouldn't just be the charismatics and Pentecostals that live as if God can be known and experienced. God can be known and experienced, friends. Listen to what John said. That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you would have head knowledge. That you go, that's interesting. No. That you also may have fellowship with us and truly. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. you see what he's saying there? Even if you never heard him in the flesh, saw him in the flesh, if we embrace what has been written of him by those who did hear him and did see him, we can have the same fellowship with the Father and the Son that they did. I wonder how many of us have really begun to explore the profoundity and the depths of that wonder. He says, and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. That's what the scriptures mean when they say joy unspeakable, full of glory. Are you just paddling in the, sh in the shallow end? Are you just dipping your toes in the ocean of God's lo great love for you in Christ? Or are you swimming? Are you swimming? Have you plunged yourself? Have you immersed yourself in it? God is more willing to make you know his love than you are willing to be loved. God is more glorious than you can even conceive. And the salvation that Christ has accomplished is truly more wonderful and profound in its implications for our lives than we can fathom. 